This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Detroit's first African-American mayor, Coleman Young, has died. He was 79. Young served an unprecedented five terms as Detroit mayor from 1974 through 1993. I went to his funeral. And the type of people in that line were, were all kinds of folks from academics and, uh, you know, politicians and business people. But it was mostly working people. And if they're working people in Detroit, that means getting there is not that easy. As we remember one of the mayors and the greatest mayors of all time. There weren't a lot of non-African Americans in the line, but for those of us folks who have come as outsiders, the experience is more than welcoming. So it was like, if you're here, then okay. The impossible dream. You gotta remember, Detroit was not just abandoned by the white working class. It was abandoned by the working and middle class, black and white. It was just left for the poorest of the poor. What he represented was a fuck you to the establishment, to the white power structure. And so that's what moved me. One of the things that occurred to me is I wasn't the only junkie in that line. And being in line and, you know, with a nice mellow high on was, you know, it was a nice experience, actually. It was a communal experience. There were other street people there. There were other people, there were other outcasts because there was an identification with him. There was an identification of a guy who went through some shit. I get goosebumps thinking about it now, walking by his casket, you know, and seeing him lying there. What did he look like? Well, he had his mouth closed, (laughs) which was rare, rare for Coleman. I, I admired him, and I know that there was a lot of corruption, but here's the thing about him. Anybody who could stand up to the fucking feds for decades and they never got shit on him. So they can say what they want. The people can say, you know, Coleman this and Coleman that. They got nothing on this dude. So I'll go to that motherfucker's funeral. I'll walk by his casket anytime. So you, so you go and you pay your respects, and then what happens? I probably got high again. <laughs> I'm sure we got high, listened to music, drive, drove around, you know, nodded, tried to find a way to get high again. I, you know, I mean, my life then was pretty much about being a junkie. Today on the show, the life of an addict in Detroit with Dimitri Mugianis. Welcome to Crime Town. Now they copping from us. Now it's dope fiends all around. And they nod. Other dope fiends coming up. Man, where you get that blow at, man? Man, them young boys down there on the corner got a motherfucker. And that's how we became Young Boys Incorporated. Reaching out, shaking hands, making friends and other 
arrest 16 people all at one time over in the Jeffries Projects. 15 minutes after we take them downtown, there's another 25 or 30 runners out there dealing dope. That doesn't sound like we're winning to me. You can't lose with, with drugs, because anybody use it or mess with it always wants more. Dope is a strong thing. It always makes you want more. What was your childhood like? I grew up like, you know, I was born in the early 60s, so really grew up in the 60s and 70s. We had a lot of freedom. You know, Detroit was still had an urban vibe to it, but it's a city of homes. Um, so there were fields to play in. So there was a lot of like, you know, exploration, good and bad. You know, I was following my brothers around and I remember maybe I was 12 or 13 and my brothers wanted to help them move, right? They used to call me Fathead, bring Fathead to move. You know, I was just a stupid kid thrilled to be with the older guys, right? So like, okay, I'll help your friend move. My brother had an old Volkswagen van. We jumped in the van, we went to this house and we were just moving shit out. It wasn't until like years later that it was explained to me that we broke in that house. <laughs> so, you know, that's like in between paper routes and shit, right? First, can you just tell us your name? Yeah, uh, my name is uh, George Majanis. I have uh, properties in Detroit. Been, uh... My brother George, who you guys talked to, was like he is now. Um, a bullshit artist, could get through anything, knew everybody. And George also liked to fight and get into shit. Now you look back and it don't see it as normal. When you're uh, 12, 13, 14, you just know that there's guns uh, everywhere. And we would walk around and just kind of look like you have a gun. So people would, okay, why is this white guy out here? Or I can't say really white, because you know, a lot of my friends would call me, well, you ain't white, white, because you're Greek or whatever. I'm like, all right. It was a phrase I heard many, many times, you know? Well, you ain't white, white. <laughs> you went up to the store to get something, you had to have your game face on. I mean, we had Coney Islands, which are little hamburger and hot dog places, which had bulletproof glass at the counter. So when you ordered a hot dog, it would give it to you through the slat. That's how violent the shit was. Little kids look at that all day long and it just becomes part of them. You know, you get indoctrinated and you're thinking that it's just normal, you know? So the first time I remember seeing a gun, for instance, okay? It was, um, I was in middle school, I was in fifth grade. I'm not going to say this woman's name because I'll remember her name forever because hopefully she's a grandmother and everything's cool now, right? And she was a black girl that was thick. And under the desk, she was showing a little pistol, like a little what they call like a, a lady's pistol, the two shots. And I remember looking under the desk and it was in between her thighs and I could see her panties and her skirt and that, that image of the panties, the skirt, and the thighs and the pistol, like that's like the fifth grade for me. <laughs> I remember feeling afraid and thrilled at everything about it, right? Sex and violence and the forbidden. Are you now a member of the Communist Party? I refuse to answer that question because relying upon my rights under the Fifth Amendment and in recognition... My father loved Coleman Young. He was sort of unapologetically black. 
and what he said at the House Un-American Activities Committee. no purpose of being here as a stool pigeon. He said, excuse me, Senator, I think you have me confused with a stool pigeon. My father liked them because he stood up to them, because he said, you know, told them to go fuck themselves. Have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? For the same reason, I refuse to answer that question. There was a definite racism within the Greek-American communities. And, you know, when they would say something about him, I remember my father at weddings and baptisms, like really screaming at people and yelling at him. And like, that's the mayor. And you're, you're just a piece of shit Greek or some shit like that. I don't know. Like right in, right in their face, you know. Um, and there's a lot of that. My father um, he suffered from mental illness, so he was uh, in some deep depression and, you know, he had some rage and the pressures just, just kind of, you know, devastated him. And then the economic turn of, of Detroit was also a factor. So my father sort of rose up and then fell hard. In the house... Um, there was always that pressure, and then my father's depression growing, and sometimes his bursts of violence. I remember that the basement wasn't cleaned once, and at like four in the morning, him just coming in in a rage and waking us all up, and you know, slapping you know my brothers and I around, and you know, being forced to clean the basement at four in the morning, or just having a bicycle thrown in your bed because you left it outside. This is the same guy who, if the cops came to the house, he would defend you. And he look, he made every little league game, every every play, every parent teachers conference, and then there was this. There was this darkness. Yeah, my father would come in, he would fly off the uh, uh, the handle at times, and uh, upstairs, you know, you're gonna get the belt. And if I beat you up the stairs, then you're gonna get it more. And uh, I, I do remember, we always felt the worst for Dimitri, because, uh, you know, it, it affected him so much more than it affected uh, Dean and I. I was afraid often at home. I was afraid on my way to school, and because I was dyslexic, I was afraid at school. And, and there was violence or an element of violence everywhere. I remember the first time that I smoked weed and the, the kind of freedom I, I got out of the economic pressure that was happening at the, my home and the kind of release from that and the kind of release from the chaos that was happening around me. I remember specifically my first time doing coke, 14, we were in a hotel with these girls, you know, at 14. So the older guys were probably 17, 18. And we were drinking and someone gave me that first line of Coke. And I remember just feeling like absolute joy and, and, and release from all of that. Like I had found that. First time I tried heroin, I was in my teens. There was a friend of mine whose brother was a junkie, you know, and he was doing shit like robbing dope houses. We found a little bit of his dope. First we found like a syringe with a little bit of water in it, and then we tried to figure out how to use that. And then we found a little bit of his dope, and we did it. And I remember thinking, I'm at peace, I'm at home. I mean, I was released. I found that sort of release from all of it. And so it was the beginning of, you know, finding a community. 
so I found a safety with within myself with 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 drugs and then the culture around drugs including music and art you know which also became part of it one two three I started playing nightclubs at at 14 back in the late 70s when um, there was like the, the emergence of the of the punk scene and then the new new wave scene and um, and I found my release through through drugs and music, which I think a lot of people in Detroit found the release that way. I was a front man. I never played an instrument. You, a, can you play an instrument? No. What was your band called? My band was called The Leisure Class. Uh, it used to be called Mr. Unique and The Leisure Suits, and then we changed it to Leisure Class. I don't remember why. Detroit is the best place for a young musician to play. If they don't like it, they will beat your ass. They will throw bottles at your head. They will run up on the stage and punch you in the mouth. And we were like provoking people. We'd just be doing like some really aggressive lyrics or something like that. And then we would just do shit like play a classical minuet at a biker bar. Um, and it became like a 13-piece sort of extravagant circus. And we did like really out shit in sort of in, in that era. The bars were that we played in were mostly gay clubs. And like most of the staff were transgender women. You know, it's my first exposure to, to that. A lot of them were sex workers. The bathroom was, you know, sort of by default co-ed where people would be doing drugs. So it was a little bit heady for a 14-year-old to, like, do whatever the fuck they want. Did you like your brother's music? Oh, yeah. It was, it was, yeah, it was, and plus it was a, it was a blast to go to his shows because I don't know if it was smart or wrong, but he kind of put us in, in charge of security. So um, most of his shows would end in fights. That was... <laughs> He wrote this uh, song called Young, Gifted, and White. It was a great song. It was really good. And then Young, Gifted, and White, which actually sends a little cringe through my body, but, but actually it's a pretty good fucking parody, and I wrote that shit when I was 14. How did it start? Uh, we live in a house with 62 bathrooms. We own a Negro who cleans them all. With 62 bathrooms, we own a Negro who cleans them all. But it's not easy being so rich. It's so hard being so smart. So says my well-conditioned counterpart, I mean my analyst. And then he had a back on sign, he goes, I know what I want to be, uh, I'm young, gifted, and white. You know, my officer, how dare you accuse me, my dad will take care of this. Young, gifted, white, 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 that's how it ended. I went to New York because, you know, there was the limitations of Detroit. You know, I went to New York because I've always wanted to go to New York. And, um, you know, had the idea that something would come of that, especially at that time. And I think drugs had a lot to do with nothing coming, but it's also completely impractical. And so just, and we, you know, sold dope here, bagged dope in the Bronx, back, all, and at the same time, making art. <laughs> I got involved with like a lot of the old beatniks. You know, Herbert Hunky was my was my mentor. The lonely souls who wander empty tombs. And you know, I was living at the Hotel Chelsea most of the time. And on my floor, 
was Julian Beck from the Living Theater, Don Cherry, the trumpet player from Ornak Coleman. All is lost. For all is lost. I would see Don Cherry cop and dope and line with me. I'm like, Mr. Cherry, would you like my place in line? <laughs> Love your work, you're a legend. <laughs> sure, kid. <laughs> yeah. And then crack came, you know? Crack came and everything fucking changed. Everything changed. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I remember the first time I heard about crack, I was working on a loading dock at the Time Life Building. And one of the guys, they were the older dudes, you know, I was like the shop steward and he was telling me about this shit. I was doing dope and he was telling me about this shit called crack, you know? And what that guy got a severance package and within like six months he was completely broke. You know, which you couldn't do that with heroin. You understand what heroin, you, you, you to get, how much heroin can you do before you just go to sleep? With crack, it was the perfect product. You just wanted more and more and more and that would be your whole focus. This is like 84 or something. I called my brother and I said, this shit's coming, things are gonna be worse. Called me up and he's like, George, there's this shit called fucking crack that's coming through. It's gonna make Detroit so fucking bad. The worst she's ever seen it. And you're like, worse? What the fuck are you talking about? How is it gonna be worse? I'm talking about like, you can go to major parts of the city all throughout, there's rolling blackouts, there's gunfire, shit's burning left and right. Fucking the helicopters out all the time. You're seeing uh, people leave left and right. There's no jobs. It's just, it was just terrible. And I go, what the fuck are you talking about? Here in Detroit, we have seen the future. And it's frightening. Crack rules in a city where once cars were king. It came rolling through like a wildfire. Like, holy shit. You knew streets that you just would not go up and down. One of them was up here. It was uh, by the Brewsters, and that was controlled by uh, YBI, I believe, Young Boys Incorporated. And if you wasn't buying or selling, or a cop, you had no business going up and down that fucker. Uh, none. Here is a city of 467 homicides last year. 200 of those were narcotics related. If you could wave a magic wand through Detroit, and remove the narcotics for a two-week period, your murders would drop, your personal crimes would drop, your rapes, they are all interrelated. And I got involved with that, got involved with it. I got involved with the crack. <laughs> My involvement with crack. <laughs> a brief dalliance, which lasted like a decade or more. Actually, I was shooting more than I was smoking. Basically, crack feels fucking great. You know, the first the first couple hits feel amazing. It's a, it's a rush to your to your brain. It floats through your body. Uh, you have immediate euphoria, like immediate wave of a powerful euphoria. 
followed almost immediately by the desire to do more, and for me and for most people, leading into rapid psychosis. So I would be smoking one hit after the other, could not stop. And after that first exhilaration and joy and bliss, there would just be a descent into hell and into consuming. I just needed more, even though I was completely paranoid. I would sit for hours watching the door handle. I would hear the crackle of police radio when there weren't any. I would hear the, suddenly I became very important because like there was helicopters sent after me because I bought $40 worth of rock, right? And I would be locked in that, smoking rock after rock after rock, basically spending all the money that I had hustled all day until it was all gone and I was left shaking and sweating and, and wanting more. That's the fucked up thing. It makes you miserable and you want more. That was when I stopped really becoming being an artist at all. You know, that's where that, that my drug use had just, you know, brought me there. And then, of course, when that stopped, then I was just left with, like, nothing. It feels great. It does what it's supposed to do for you. And then it takes over completely. So my, my plan to get sober was to leave New York and run after-hours clubs with my brother. Back in Detroit, we had three of them going at Seven Mile and Woodward. Club Heaven, which was a, a pretty famous uh, house place, you know, primarily gay and transgender black people. We had an ultra-rock place underneath it, and then we had a bar called Another Fucking Bar. Yeah, hell, I remember when Dennis Rodman was missing for 12 days. He's out at our place, you know. He, he knew about Club Heaven, and a few months later, he's in the dress. So I'm like, oh, I wonder if we had any influence on that one, you know. Now, one of our, our taglines was, uh, you know, uh, come back to the city your parents abandoned, you know. And fuck, we used to have white flight night, you know. Tell us what part of the city your parents ran from. You got fucking drinks half off, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's the truth. You know, that's the kind of truth. That was it. Come back to the city your parents abandoned. Another fucking bar in Detroit, you know. You told us before that you had a big picture of Coleman Young on the wall. Oh, yeah. I had a huge mural of him up on the wall, and it said MFIC, because that's what he had on his desk, motherfucker in charge, right? To say I'm the motherfucker in charge and actually be in charge, it's kind of kind of fucking cool. The brothers would come in and think, Are they making fun of my hero because the place is called another fucking bar, AFB. And the white people come in and go, oh, he ruined the city. And you're like, he fucking ruined the city, you know? Coleman was a, was a good mayor. It was a fun time. It was also completely chaotic. My drug use was spinning out. I went to detox. But I never went to rehab. I just didn't I just didn't think it would work, right? You know, I mean, I probably went through cold turkey 30 or 40 times. And it would work for a minute or a week or three weeks, and then I would go back to using. When Dimitri was doing it, it affected me a lot because you can't protect him. On, and uh, when you would see him and he's like, you know, um, uh, high and, you know, like having the half nod and, and the cigarette and all that kind of stuff, that's a bad scene. You have restaurants and uh, you're constantly having to order spoons because the fucker kept taking all the spoons, you know? <laughs> it's like, you know, the, everybody works there knows about it, you know? But, uh, I mean, by the end, I remember my, 
my prayer was that he would, um, that my parents would die before he did, you know. What's it like to try to kick cold turkey? You said you went through that process 30 times. What stuff, what does it feel like? You know, it's pretty hellish. I mean, the thing is that they say it's flu-like symptoms, right? <laughs> it's completely ridiculous to say that. It, first of all, um, you can't get comfortable. Uh, your bowels uh, are just wide open. So you're, you know, after being constipated from from the drugs, you're you've thrown in the other direction. It's hot and cold chills, severe bone aches, um, incredible emotion. For men, sometimes you're just like having spontaneous orgasms. I mean, not fun ones, just like, you know, in the midst of all of that, you know, like, oh, great. <laughs> like, <laughs> Wait, really? I've never heard that before. Oh, yeah, man. That, one of the things is that, like, after you kick, like, guys will go back because they become hair triggered. So the wind blows and you come, right? Like, like, <laughs> so there's all that. And then there's the idea after you've kicked several times and you're getting older, first of all, it gets way, way worse. It gets worse every fucking time. And then the idea in the back of your mind, like, I'm going to go for three days, four days, maybe a week. I'll start to feel better, and then I'm going to use again. What the fuck am I doing? And then also crushing depression, um, regret. I mean, I kicked in Detroit so many times and just went right back out and used again, you know? And it, there becomes a point of absolute despair, you know, like, your life will never be other than this. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about Dimitri's wife? Uh, Barbara? Barbara was a, a, a blast. She was, um, she was just a blast. She was so great to talk to, and she was bright, she was funny, she was definitely tough. She was a really good person. I really definitely miss Barbara. I met her in New York. She was an actress and a ballerina. Beautiful, beautiful girl. Kind of looked like Isabella Rossellini. And we lived in the Hotel Chelsea for a while. And all these, you know, it was, a, it was an interesting life. The heroin was still working, you know? And it worked for many years in a relationship group, but then it just got hard. She was injecting and was using the same needles over and over again. She got endocarditis, which is an infection of the heart. I was staying in my parents' house. I was in the basement. You know, we knew she was sick. I knew she was in the hospital. The family was really pissed at me. They wouldn't talk to me. So my brother George was calling the hospital. I had befriended a nurse on the phone who every day I would call in and I would ask about her condition and I would go and, and talk to Dimitri about it. So I went over to my parents' house and I made the phone call to the nurse one day and uh, <clears throat> she said, I'm sorry, but I really can't talk to you. I can only talk to family members. And she was just being a little bit more standoffish. And I said to her, I go, is Barbara still with us? And then she goes, no, I'm sorry. I remember being numb, sick, wanting to throw up, and then I had to go down and tell uh, Dimitri that uh, Barbara had died, and um, that scream still uh, still haunts me. One morning he came in and said she's dead. It was a few days before Christmas, and I remember just screaming, and I've never had that effect on me where I just was vomiting. 
I just vomited and vomited, and that just sent me into like a deep, deep spiral. I didn't see any way out. She was pregnant. I didn't know she was pregnant until after she passed away, so the guilt just sent me into a deep black hole, which I stayed in for about five years, going deeper and deeper and deeper. And I was turning 40, and every morning I would wake up, and first thought was suicide. Every night, my last thought was suicide. I just simply wanted to die. Um, how did you get out of it? How did you get clean? The normal route wasn't working for me. I had heard about this stuff called Ibogaine. Uh, Ibogaine is a uh, alkaloid of uh, the iboga plant, which is found in central West Africa, Gabon. When ingested, um, it basically eliminates withdrawal in folks who are on opiates or opioids. Finally, I just said, fuck it, let me try this. I went and did the, the treatment in, in Holland. George came with me. He's like, wait a minute, you're going to Amsterdam to get off of drugs and you're going to trip? He goes, I think I'm coming. <laughs> if somebody tells you stick your finger in the light socket three times and you know, your brother's going to be cured of heroin, you're going to fucking try it, you know? I remember Dimitri being a bit nervous about it and really wanting to do it, you know? I mean, that's the whole thing. He really wanted to do it. There's like a windmill at the end of this fucking field of tulips literally with fucking canals and shit right and this Israeli hippie lady who's given it you know with all her kids running around it was it was really surreal so to speak because uh, iboga makes you uh, hallucinate and um, if you ever want to have a completely like boring time is sit next to somebody tripping for a couple days all right You have to be in the beginning of withdrawal, okay? So like 12 hours in, so you're, you got, you got chicken skin and you're, you're, you're tearing up and your nose is running. You take a small amount of it, a test dose, and the sickness immediately goes away. So it was given to me and I had to like swallow this nasty shit. And then, you know, over the course of like an hour or so, I was given more and more. And then I went into a deep, deep trip. <laughs> And when you close your eyes, all kinds of shit will, will appear. I would see scenes of humiliation to myself. I would see myself as a child uh, in front of a second grade class, unable to read while this woman berated me, right? I could see the faces of people who had died. At one point, the entire room filled up with my dead. I saw my brothers beaten up, guys. I saw my father as a hurt person, and I had a lot of compassion for him. And Barbara's death, you know, I processed that, but knew it wasn't my fault. And just being free from that, you know, I mean, I was sad about it, I could grieve it, but it wasn't about me. And I was able to wash it away in a forgiveness of not only other people, but myself. I remember waking up without even really realizing it, but I had no desire to use, use drugs. And I was in Holland. 
I needed a year to sort of recuperate. I got into 12-step fellowship. The fellowship in Detroit's fucking amazing because those same cats that you, you know, it's that you that were selling the dope are now in there and you could see them as full human beings. Uh, the first day coming back into Detroit to the place I used to cop, summer day, there's only two other Caucasians in the entire room of 100 people and they asked for newcomers and I remember walking up and they have a thing in Detroit. I'm going to cry if I talk about this too much. But everyone starts clapping. And I'm walking up to the front, and a guy gives me a hug, and then all hundred people, one at a time, come up and give me a hug. And by the time I was done, I was like in a puddle. So D- Dimitri was just totally clean after that? Yeah. Yes. Crazy. I mean, to- totally clean. Dimitri is the same person now as he was when he was uh, five or six years old. Everybody enjoys being around him. And um, I'm, I'm so happy about that, that, you know, I'm so happy that my, my kids get to experience that, what have you. And, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a good person. We're lucky, you know. Just see if you can just kind of touch base with the sounds. So what are you doing today? I, I'm I, right now. Um, my, I got a part-time gig. I work in East Harlem um, I, in a, at, a, at a harm reduction agency, a needle exchange. We run a holistic component, which is like <laughs> I don't know how the fuck that happened, but like it, we do Tai Chi, we do yoga, um, we uh, we do um, acupuncture, sound meditation. So, you know, I spend my time traveling a bit and like, it's, I, I fucking, I wake up and do whatever the fuck I want every day. It's just fucking amazing. You know, even at my job, I can't believe that's my fight. It's part time. I can't believe it's my job. Like what? And every Thursday we have a ceremony where I just play drums and sage and talk and sing and dance. And that's my job. And then do yoga with junkies. <laughs> Next time on Crime Town, after Coleman Young's death, a vacuum opens in Detroit's power structure, and an ambitious young politician named Kwame Kilpatrick sees his chance. Now it's time for all of us to rise up and begin our future right here, right now. God bless you and thank you. Crime Town is Mark Smirling and Zach Stewart Pontier. This season is made in partnership with Gimlet Media and Spotify. This episode was produced by Samantha Lee, Ryan Murdoch, John White, Rob Zipko, and Soraya Shockley. The senior producer is me, Drew Nellis. Editing by Zach Stewart Pontier and Mark Smerling. Fact checking by Jennifer Blackman. This episode was mixed, sound designed, and scored by Kenny Kusiak. Original music this season composed by Homer Steinweiss. We recorded some original music at Rust Belt Studios in Detroit, in partnership with Detroit Sound Conservancy. Special thanks to Carlton Goals and Maurice Bronahead Heard. Additional music by Kenny Kusiak, John Kusiak, John Ivins, and Edwin. Additional mixing by Bobby Lord. 
Our theme song is Politicians in My Eyes by Death. Our credit music this week is I Love You More by The Leisure Class. We started a Crime Town Companion playlist on Spotify. And this week, we added a couple of Leisure Class songs, as well as some other classics of Detroit punk. Head over to CrimetownMusic.com to check it out. Archival research by Brennan Reese. Show art and design by James Cabrera and Elise Harbin. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Crimetown Show, and on Twitter at Crimetown. To learn more about Dimitri's work, you can visit DimitriMugianis.com. Guess what? He's got a podcast, too. You can also donate to New York Harm Reduction Educators, where Dimitri works at nyhre.org. Thanks to the Detroit Free Press, Peter Batia, Jim Schaefer, Mary Schrader, Ali Delianis, Mary Wallace, the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University, Melissa Sampson, the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History, the Detroit Historical Society, Brendan Roney, James Raisin, and everyone who shared their stories with us. Detroit is an amazing place, and we're honored to tell a small part of its story. Alex Bloomberg is the podfather. I would see him copping dope in line with me. I'm like, Mr. Bloomberg, would you like my place in line? Love your work. You're a legend. Sure, kid. Yeah. On Saturdays, I'd go to the methadone clinic, I'd get my methadone, we'd go buy a bunch of dope, because I had the day off, and I'd shoot up and listen to This American Life. (laughs) (laughs) Really? (laughs) It's also like the whitest drug experience I think I've ever heard. It's like what what I would do if I were a heroin addict. It's perfect, actually, man. This American Life's perfect for heroin. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Because it's so, like, sleepy? Yeah, like his voice. He's like, yeah, you know. And here's the thing. What's the thing, man? (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah.